Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I want you to think for a minute about the best manager that you've ever worked for. And I want you to think about what they drew out in you. What did they help you do? Could, were they, did they help you be smarter, more productive? What was it that made you feel so good about working for that manager? And then contrast that with the worst manager you've worked for. You probably felt less smart, less talented, less productive, and pretty guarantee you felt less happy as well. But today I want to talk about the distinction between managers who multiply versus diminish. I want to ask where are you as a manager and I want to ask what you can do differently. My guest today is Liz Weissman. Liz is a researcher and an executive advisor who teaches leadership to executives around the world and she is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, Smarter the multiplier effect also, and tapping the genius inside our schools. And there's a bunch of other books. There's a Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts. She's the CEO of Wiseman Group, which is a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley. And some of her recent clients include Apple, AT&T, Disney, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Nike, Salesforce, Tesla, Twitter. That's just a small sample, I might add. Liz has been listed on the 50s Thinker ranking, and in 2019, she was recognized as the top leadership thinker in the world. And she's conducted significant research in the field of leadership and collective intelligence. She writes for Harvard Business Review, Fortune, a bunch of other places, and she's a frequent guest lecturer at BYU and Stanford. I should add to this that she also has former experience at Oracle Corporation, so she comes that lovely combination of research and practical experience. So, Liz, welcome to the show. Well, you know, it's so good to be in this conversation, and Wanda, I have to say you got me thinking about my past bosses with those questions. <laughs> Very good. All right, I am tempted to ask you about that one. I will, I will say the one comment that the worst boss I ever had I learned the most from, which is what a lot of people say. Now, that means I learned what not to do more than I learned what to do, but, you know, they happen to all of us. Before we go down that route, though, Liz, I want to know why. I want to know what got you started on this journey of thinking about multipliers. Well, I think, you know, I, I, I love I love the theme for this podcast, Out of the Comfort Zone, because it was really when I was out of the comfort zone that I got thinking about this, and it began when I joined Oracle right out of college, and, you know, back then, Oracle's this young, maverick, you know, rapidly growing software company, but it was really off the radar. All my friends from business school, you know, were taking jobs at proper companies, and I was going to go work for what seemed to them like a toothpaste manufacturer, and... (laughs) It was this like wild company, but what was interesting is they had this hiring profile, and what they looked for was this little trifecta of talent. They wanted people who were really smart, really driven, really achievement oriented, kind of like freaky driven, mm-hmm. and nice. And, 
And, you know, sometimes they compromised on nice, but rarely on the other two. And, and you know, they hired people out of these top schools, and I didn't really, I hadn't gone to one of their 17 schools that they hired for. And I think it was because of that that when I joined and found myself around all these incredibly smart people, that I just felt really lucky to work there. And I was fascinated by all of these just brilliant people all around me. I come home from work and say, man, every day I feel like I'm getting a PhD in just like world knowledge. And then the second part of this out of my comfort zone was being thrown into management as a child. So I'm like, I don't know, 25 years old, and I'm now suddenly the boss of training for this company, and I didn't know how to lead or manage, but I noticed something because I was desperately watching how are other people doing this, trying to like figure out how do I be a good leader, and that's when I started to notice how leaders affected intelligence. And again, it's a company just full of brilliant people, but I would watch this brilliant leader shut down all the intelligence in the people around them. Like, for them to be smart, nobody else got to be smart. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. It's like they used their intelligence as a weapon. And, I mean, haven't we all watched that happen? And I just was so curious about it, but I was also, I think, mad about this because I, I knew all these brilliant people, but then I would watch them in meetings with some of the leaders and I would see them be in some ways like a, a shell of their real self and capability. I was like, what's going on there? And then I would watch that very same person around another leader and they were brilliant and, 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 and smart and quick and savvy and funny. But yet around the other leader, they're like holding back and playing it safe. And I just was fascinated by this. Some of it was me just trying to figure out how do I lead, but also just, and I watched this dynamic for for years. And it wasn't until I left Oracle and started coaching executives who struggled with the same issue. They were really smart, but the people around them were holding back that I just said, ooh, there's something going on here and I need to understand it. It's interesting. So I have two follow-on questions for that. How much do you think of the leaders that we're, let me see, the leaders and whose presence we hold back our intelligence? How much of that is their personality is just intimidating? How much of it is we don't want to stand up to their base of power? And how much of it is something else? Is it a personality piece? Well, you know, I I don't know how much of it is personality, but I'll tell you how my perspective has shifted on this. When I started the research, I I thought it was that these diminishers were, I guess it probably was personality, that they were like self-centered, narcissistic kind of bully, like, because that's what it seemed like. They had to be the smartest person in the room, and What I've come to see is that most of the diminishing that's happening is really happening quite by accident. And and it's not that the leader is using their power to shut down others, like, you know what, I need to be in control and the smartest person. It's in some ways, they're not power mongers. They're totally unaware of their own power. And they're not actively suppressing people. It's just that they're so 
capable that mm-hmm. people defer to them. They're so smart that people defer to them. You know, haven't we all been around someone that we're, we have so much respect for and they're so capable that when there's like a question lingering in the air, like we could jump up and grab that and answer it ourselves or we could just defer to smart person to our left who's often right. the boss. And, and that's what was fascinating to me is how much of this diminishing of people was in some ways self-inflicted by the people because they just deferred to the boss instead of grabbing hold of that opportunity themselves. Right. Like the bosses had no idea they were doing it is, right. is I think what I'm saying. Okay, so it's not intentional and it's not necessarily narcissism. Unless this is where our work overlaps. Because I find some people, especially the ones that are really, really IQ smart, have this belief that to be the boss, they are supposed to be the smart one who has the answer. Something I call expertise leadership. They lead from their base of expertise. And so therefore, for me to still be the leader, I have to have the answer. And when I don't have the answer, oh, my gosh, my leadership is called into question. Um, and I wonder how much of that is also driving this accidental diminishing behavior that you're seeing as well. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Now, let's say I don't want to um, brush past the fact that there's a lot of diminishing that's happening from the tyrannical bully yeah. narcissist who who is actually overtly uh, suppressing other people around them. That happens. That's just not the majority of yeah. the problem. And I think there's a lot of people who it's not like they need to be the smartest person in the room. It's not like they've got some insecurity complex that's playing out every day at work. It's just that they've been walking down the path of least resistance as a mm-hmm. leader and they simply assume that they were put into that job because of their deep expertise, because of their capability, and that, like, it's they missed the memo that yeah. the promotion to management that their job changed. Yeah. I remember missing that memo, Wanda. I <laughs> I got promoted very young, and probably because I was kind of quick, capable, and got things done. And it was about six months before I had the little leadership existential crisis and it was you know me alone in a dark office building you know everyone else has gone home and I'm still working my to-do list thinking what's wrong with the people who work for me like why aren't they doing (laughs) their job and I don't know how long I sat there it was probably like you know the scene from the Grinch who who stole Christmas like you know where that Grinch is puzzling uh-huh. <laughs> you know, holding the sleigh over the top of the mountain. I, and this was probably me puzzling. I don't know how long I, I sat there. But at the end of this this reflection, this rumination, was this realization of, oh, no, Liz, like there is someone here who's not doing their job, and it's mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. your job as a manager is to move work to other people and to keep it there and to get work done through others. And somehow you're letting everyone put the work back on you. Right. Like, wow, you're not doing your job. Yeah. Because, yeah. And, and it took me, it took me a few months to realize, oh no, I'm, <laughs> you know, in fact, I was, it was helped by, um, maybe the, 
you mentioned the worst boss. Uh, we often learn things from yeah. this was maybe the worst boss I had. But at one point, he stopped by my office. I was a brand new manager. And he said, out of nowhere, he said, you know, Liz, if, if you want to, you can read novels all day long at work. I'm like, okay. what? Now, I'm really young still. And I probably, probably because I was fired from my very first job I had when I was in high school, for not taking the job very seriously, I think I've always had a little overdeveloped work ethic. And so, you know, here's like my, my nut job boss telling me I can read novels all day at work. And I'm like, what? It took me a little, little while thinking about what he was actually saying to me was, Liz, your own productivity is not what's important. It's what your team does. Because he thinks that you can read all novels all day as long as your team gets their work done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that was part of what helped this come into focus, which is not about you and your own ideas and capability, your own productivity, your own to-do list. It's it's what you can get done through others. Right, right. Some people are still, I think, you know, figuring that out, and they're well into their management career. Exactly. In fact, many of them have been managing the other way for quite a long time before they actually realize it. I think that's a really hard transition because in my language, what that means is people, you know, I feel like I have value if I know stuff and I know how to tell people what to stuff and know what the answers are and people can come and ask me, how do I do this? And I know that I feel like I'm adding value then. But if I could, in effect, sit here and read novels all day long, oh my gosh, what am I doing that's adding value? And that's where I think people come unglued. All right, but that's my take, not your take. I want to talk for a minute about the differences between multipliers and diminishers. So I get the idea that diminishers seem to be the smartest in the room and they leave other people feeling less smart or acting less smart and multipliers have the opposite effect but there's more to it than that so give me a quick primer on multipliers versus diminishers well what i found is that they have a very different effect on people so maybe we'll start from the effect they have and work back what i found in my research and it still shocks me to this day that these leaders that other people considered diminishing were getting less than half of people's available intelligence. You know, their knowledge, their skills, their insights, their ideas, whereas these multiplier leaders were getting virtually all of it. It's just 2x difference. And of course, you know, we're, we don't pay people less because their boss happens to be a diminisher, but it just still stuns me how many companies are hiring really smart people working very hard to like kind of win the war for talent and bring in sharp, capable people, but then not realizing that some of their managers are, are underutilizing them deeply. So, you know, maybe getting 48 cents on the dollar from that investment. That's, that's the effect they have on others. Um, And of course they create a very different work environment, you know, diminishers create an environment that is frustrating, um, and exhausting, whereas multipliers create this environment that's, you know, a little bit exhausting, particularly because they're working people out of their comfort zone, but totally exhilarating. And and where does this come from? It comes from, you know, a few things that they do very differently, and it's the way they manage talent, the, the work environment, the, the climate um, that they create mm-hmm. around them the way they set direction, the way they make decisions, and the way they get things done. Um, you know, for example, the diminisher is 
classically the micromanager. They get things done, but it's because they're essentially the one doing it. They're the ones kind of moving things across the finish line, Where, whereas the multiplier, they very much get things done through others because they move ownership and accountability out from them, and they place that that burden, kind of that sweet burden, on other people. And, okay. and even all of that, those behavioral differences aren't really what's most important. It's it's the difference in mindset. You know, the diminishers mm-hmm. are having this effect because essentially they're operating from this assumption that nobody's going to figure it out without me, without mm-hmm. my expertise, without my intervention, without my assistance, without my guidance, without my direction. You know, so they don't have to even assume, like, I'm the smartest, I'm, you know, surrounded by incapable people. It's they just have an over inflated sense of their own importance in that mm-hmm. chain of, of getting work done. Whereas the multiplier operates from this assumption, this this mindset that you know, that people are smart and can figure it out. Which you know, when I finished this research, one of the people I shared it with was Carol Dweck, um, you know, here mm-hmm. at Stanford and mm-hmm. she was so interested by it and delighted by it because she said, Well essentially what you've been doing is looking at what's and, and you know, Carol is, of course, the, the founder of this idea of a growth mindset. Right. She's mm-hmm. like, we know what happens when individuals hold either a growth or a fixed mindset, but essentially what you're looking at is what happens when a leader holds a growth mindset about someone on their team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, what if you not only believe that you're smart and can figure it out, what happens when you come into work thinking that people around you are capable of handling challenge and increasing difficulty and, you know, problem solving and accountability. Like what happens then? Yeah. That is an interesting because we do know um, Carol Dweck's work about growth mindset that I have a belief that I can learn and grow and develop and be stronger and smarter and figure it out myself. But it's an interesting idea to say that I also believe that about other people that they can grow and learn and develop and figure it out themselves. Nice, nice distinction. Isn't it like, it would be interesting. I haven't done this research, but your, your observation is making me think like, wouldn't it be interesting to look at what happens when an individual has a growth mindset about themselves, but not about others? Yeah. Or people who maybe don't hold that about themselves, but do hold it about others. And like, I don't know, somehow there's like a quadrant there that could be really interesting, but I think if you really yeah. deeply believe that you have the ability to figure things out, learn on the fly, you know, find success outside of your comfort zone, lead outside your area of your expertise, that you probably extend that same belief to others. I would think so, but I have seen some who don't. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think there is a two by four, two by two there, sort of four cells, belief about myself and belief about others. Um, anyway. Okay, but let's come back to the model here rather than design a new research study. So I get oh, the sense. I hate that you're pulling us back because I, I'm sorry. I feel like <laughs> we need to get Carol on the phone. Yes, well, that would be fun. We should try that one. All right, so diminishers get less than 50% of the intelligence, skills, capability, problem solving of the very smart people that they hire around them. It's both frustrating and exhausting. 
and they tend to be the ones who push things across the finish line. So it can lead to a bit of micromanagement. Multipliers are the ones who get almost all or all of the intelligence skills, capability, problem solving of the people who work for them two times as much for the most part. So a big difference. It's exhausting, but exhilarating as opposed to frustrating. And they tend to get things done by moving ownership and accountability to other people. And multipliers also tend to have an assumption that other people are smart. They can figure it out. They too can grow, learn, and develop. All right. So here we go, Carol. I'm about to take a new job. It's clear to me that I would like to work for a multiplier manager as opposed to a diminisher manager. Is there, I mean, and they're all going to tell me lovely, wonderful things in the interview process. Is there a way to know whether that manager is a multiplier or a diminisher? Mm, yeah, I think there are some ways to know. You know, this is, uh, to me, it's a really important skill to figure out. It's like, you know, so many people um, come and say like, oh, what, I'm right out of college. You know, what job should I take? What company should I work for? I'm like, oh, none of those are important. I'll tell you what's important. <laughs> Who you go to work for yeah. is really important, particularly early in your career. So being able to quickly assess someone's orientation, you know, are they more of a multiplier, more of a diminisher is really important. And particularly if you're mid-career and you're leaving a company because you work for a diminisher, you're likely to go find another one unless you're really savvy about this. There's some behavioral things that you can look for. One, look for someone's uh, talk-to-listen ratio. Mm-hmm. Two, look for evidence of, of intellectual curiosity. It was the number one trait of multiplier leaders. You know, do they want to know why? Like, why did you make that decision? Do they want to know more about you? Are they just interest, Are they more interested in what they don't know, or do they gravitate back to what they do know? You know, um, a funny one is I, I usually look for a sense of humor. I, in the research, I added it to the survey in the very last minute before we started because I had this hunch that not that multipliers were, were comics, but that diminishers lack a sense of humor. And it's the number one thing that's um, negatively correlated with diminishers, meaning they, they don't laugh at themselves. They don't, you know, I look for just signs of laughter in an environment, lightheartedness, self-deprecation, like real, you know, funny self-deprecation. And, you know, are they emphatic or do they consider multiple perspectives? Do they really want to know what other people know? Do they think in those kinds of um, complexities? And, um Here's, I'll give you a question that, this question was given to me by Tom Friel, who's the former CEO of Hydric and Struggles. And, mm-hmm. you know, he is someone who's placed hundreds of CEOs, you know, really high profile positions. When he was, um, when I was talking with him about this idea of multiplier, he said, Liz, I feel like I've spent my whole career trying to suss out who were the multipliers and who were the diminishers. Mm-hmm. And he shared with me his killer question that he asked. And he asked, so this would be asking a manager who's like working in company A and is trying to recruit him over to company B. He would ask this executive to tell him about his team over there at company A. And then he would listen. And what was fascinating is what he was listening for. 
He wasn't listening for what they said, how they talked about their team. He was listening for how long this executive could talk about his or her team. It was just a a duration question. (laughs) Isn't it just so clever? That's right. Because what he's saying, he's looking for how long do they genuinely, can they talk about their team in depth? But like, where is their orientation? Is it about, is it on the people they lead? Or do they quickly turn the conversation? Well, okay, that's Sarah Jane Sunir, but let me tell you back about me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's one of the things, if you're wanting to go and work for a multiplier-like leader, you might ask, tell me about the team of people you lead. Mm-hmm. And Great just question. listen for how long they can talk. And, and then, you know, do your investigative work. Um, ask people, right. you know, check last door, do a trial project, ask to sit in on a meeting. But, you know, it's the, it's the difference between dating and marriage. Like, managers are trying to recruit you, and they're on their best behavior as leaders. But you've got to find out how do they really lead on a day-to-day basis and how much space and challenge are you going to be given or are you going to be told what to do? Yeah. I strike, you know, I know you write this book and do a lot of coaching and helping leaders become multipliers, move from being diminishers to multipliers. I think there's another angle on this. If we teach people how to spot diminishers and not work for them, then we have no choice but for those diminishers to either figure it out or go back to do something else. So maybe there's, you know, a whole mission here around teaching people how to figure out who they're going to go work for. Right. It's like a different way to rid the world of bad bosses rather than try to change behavior. It's just let the market, um, in some ways, just no longer value that form of leadership. And people will learn to adapt. Yeah, I, I think there's I think there's a, both ends of the spectrum have some merit. Okay, we're going to take a break in just a couple minutes, but I have to ask you one question that I think a lot of people have asked, which is, is this a dichotomy, meaning you're either predominantly a diminisher or predominantly a multiplier, or are there shades of gray in between the two, as in it's a continuum? Mm. Well, it is a continuum, but not the way we think of continuums like, oh, gee, where is this individual on this continuum between multiplier and diminisher? It's understanding that we can be leading as a multiplier or like a diminisher at any moment in time, or that some people might bring out our multiplier side and other people might kind of fade out that diminisher. And... Like maybe in between these two stations is where I think most of our our behavior is as leaders is that most diminishing is the accidental diminishing variety. You know, that most of us have a pretty strong accidental diminisher lurking inside. And that that is to say that most of the time we end up shutting down ideas and energy and causing people to hold back and not take ownership or, or not be accountable, we as managers are doing this with the best of intent. Like, we're doing it by doing the very things we've often been taught to do, but not realizing that um, helping someone who's struggling is actually diminishing. Uh, Leading by example and setting the pace for your team causes other people to watch you rather than follow you. That, you know, jumping in quickly to address problems actually means that you're running around moving fast, but other people around you are waiting. And so it's really coming to understand 
not are you a multiplier or a diminisher, but what brings out your inner diminisher? And how what? do you recognize that before you end up diminishing? Okay. All right. I just have to, I want to hold that question for a minute, but I want to go back and say, you know, I ask all the time in classes and groups and so on for people to identify their most admired leader. And they will always say they lead by example. But you just said leading by example, setting the pace is a diminishing tactic because you're encouraging people to wait for you to have the answer or to define the speed or so on. Did I hear that correctly? Mm. You did. And, you know, when you, because your question was a leader you admire. Is that the Uh question? Uh Right, because we tend to admire these people. And, you know, because we're admiring them, uh, maybe as superstars, as, as heroes, we admire them for what they do. What I studied was what effect leaders have on others. It's like, it's different than the question, who is a leader you were at your best around? Because those leaders, they, they may lead by example when it comes to morals and ethics and issues of character. Uh-huh. But like, let's, let's just kind of quickly walk it through. Let's say my company has a new initiative about customer service. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to model that. I'm going to lead the way. I'm going to get out ahead of my team. I'm going to show them uh, how much time I'm spending out in the field and talking to customers and share reports of here's what I'm learning about customers. And I think, of course, that I'm going to set the pace for this and then other people will notice and they'll, they'll follow and do likewise. But what we find more often than not is what people do is they kind of let you do it and they watch. Like, look at Liz doing her thing, out there meeting with customers, feeding us all this data. She's so good at this. She loves doing it. Because what you really want is you want Mm -hmm. the people you lead to be out there doing that and you struggling to keep up with them. So it's, I'm not saying it's always diminishing to lead by example, but we get into this accidental diminishing space. It's a dangerous practice. Again, yeah. A must-do for ethics and morals, character, all of those issues around integrity. When it comes to doing the work, be suspicious. Okay. You will now make me change my question. I appreciate that. I'm now going to ask what leaders bring out the best around you. And I really, I do see this. I just want to iterate this one. I see this all the time when we have an initiative. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to show you how good to do it. I'm going to help you see the benefits and the gains that I can generate and that will inspire you to do it. But what you're saying is it doesn't inspire other people to do more of that behavior, what it does is inspire other people to watch me doing it and say, oh, wow, isn't Wanda great at it? Well, it reminds me of this this quote. Now, it's a reference to these two British prime ministers from the 1800s. I first mm-hmm. heard it when Bono, of you 2 was describing George Clooney. He's trying to describe, like, who is George Clooney? And, and he compared him to these two British prime ministers, and he said... I've got to make sure I got this right. It's been said that after meeting with the great British Prime Minister, William Ewart Gladstone, you Mm -hmm. left feeling like he was the smartest person in the world. But after meeting with his rival, Benjamin Disraeli, 
you left thinking you were the smartest person. Mm-hmm. And I think it captures a little bit of that nuance, which are, you know, there are leaders we admire for who they are and for their capability. And then there are leaders we admire and appreciate for who we are around them. Around them, yeah. And I don't think it's mutually exclusive. Like, I think you can be a leader who people admire for your integrity, Mm -hmm. for example. But when people overly admire your ability, Mm -hmm. it's easy to say, you know what? I'll let her do it. She's a superstar. I'll, I'll play second fiddle. Mm-hmm. I'll listen to her. I'll appreciate mm-hmm. what she's doing rather than I'm going to be at my best around that person. Okay. Great. All right. I get the distinction. It's an important one, but it's also a fairly subtle one. All right, so this, is. this is a perfect place to take a stop. This notion of leaders who leave other people feeling smarter more competent and more capable themselves, we're calling multipliers, and people who diminish, meaning we leave maybe admiring them, maybe thinking they're incredible, but we leave believing that they are the smartest person, not us. And so one brings out the best, that's the multiplier, and one fails to bring out the best in their teams. And I guess that's, I hope that's a decent summary of the concept, at least. It's a beautiful summary. And it's a subtlety there that's worth continuing to explore. Like, what are all the subtle ways that we can end up shutting down people while we're actually thinking we're empowering them? Right. Right. And that's where I want to pick up because you had dangled a topic that we just left, which was this notion that what is it that brings out my inner diminisher as a leader and how do I begin to recognize that and what do I do about it? And that is the perfect place to come back from a break. With me today is Liz Weissman. The book that we're talking about is a New York Times bestseller called Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. And we'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. 
You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Liz Weissman. We've been talking about her book, the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. The notion here is that um, in working for a multiplier leader is exhausting but exhilarating because you feel like you are smarter and you give more of your intelligence, capability, and skills to the job. Multipliers make work happen through others by getting them to take ownership and accountability Whereas when we are diminishing, we're doing so with the best of intent. The best of intent is showing the way and setting the pace and being the role model in ways. But what that often leads to is that people are willing to say, well, I can never be as good as you are and therefore you do it and I will follow as opposed to let me give you my best of thinking. Um, so what's interesting is Liz will say that all of us have an inner diminisher. Some of us bring it out more than others, but we all have that inner diminishing diminishing uh, part of us. And you left a question in the last segment where we were saying, what is it that brings out the inner diminisher in people? So Liz, in your experience, what is it that brings out that diminisher? Well, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can accidentally diminish. Let me, I've given them a few names. I'm just going to rattle off the names because some people might go, ooh, that's me. Like, oh, the fountain of ideas, the always on leader, the rescuer, the pace setter, the rapid responder, uh, the protector, the strategist, the visionary, the perfectionist. So, there's just a couple examples of the things that we do that are surprisingly diminishing. And, you know, the, the more interesting question is not even what are my accidental diminisher tendencies. It's what tends to bring out my accidental diminisher tendencies. And it's probably a little different for everyone. But, you know, one is, is um, stress. You know, under mm-hmm. stressful times, we tend to, like, revert back to taking control over things because in, in many ways, right. what we find stressful are things that are out of our control. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to yank back control. So we've put someone else in charge, but now suddenly it's a stressful situation and we, we pull that back and we take over something that we've given to someone else, often with the best of intent to help them. So stress tends to do it. Um, suffering tends to do it. Now, um, one of the most common ways we see people diminish is by, by rescuing other people. So these are like well-intended, big-hearted leaders who see someone struggling. Maybe they're on the verge of failing, and we want them to be successful. Like we're really not trying to take over and have this like, here I am to save the day kind of moment. We just don't want to see that person fail. And so we, we jump in, and we sometimes it's as simple as just extending a hand of help. Mm-hmm. But we know what happens when a leader helps too early or too often is right. essentially they've completely aborted that learning process. You know, yeah. That's often where all the learning comes. It's like, it's like takeoff and landing in a project. That's where the hard stuff is. And that's where we tend to rescue people. And so, you know, we've helped them, but what we've essentially said is, 
I don't think you can do this on your own. You're not capable of getting it done. And and so that's a way we do it. Um, for me, most of my diminishing comes, and I can't even really claim to have accidental diminishing at this point. Like, I mostly know about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like there's there's one person who doesn't really get to play the accidental diminisher card. It's probably me. Uh, but I am at my worst as a leader when I am most excited about something. <laughs> like <laughs> if there's a project that is interesting and challenging and fun and I'm really excited about it, often my just enthusiasm for the work takes over and I suddenly become the fountain of ideas. Hey, we should do this. What about that? Have you thought about that? It's not that I think that my ideas are better. I'm just super excited. Let's get this party started. Let's get the creative juices flowing. And the next thing you know, the people on my team are running around chasing my ideas rather than using their energy to come up with potentially better ideas. And, or I'm just so excited about like what someone else is doing that like my optimist kicks in and I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be more. And I completely overlook the fact that it's going to be a bumpy road in producing yeah. something that's great. And I, I just don't even, I gloss right over the fact that people around me are suffering and struggling because I'm so convinced this is going to be brilliant. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to understand like what triggers our accidental diminisher tendencies. Not like an emotional yeah. trigger. What are the situational things that like present this irresistible bait? Yeah. Now, a lot of people that I talk to have this perfectionist streak. Mm. A lot of people. And in some parts of your career, it makes you really successful, particularly when you are the expert and you can drive for better and better and better and better results, okay? Especially when you're an individual contributor in that kind of role. And there's a point at which it just becomes disheartening. So talk for a minute about how perfectionism becomes an accidental diminisher. So, you know, the way I look at all of these is, like, what is the narrative of the leader, and then what is the experience of the contributor? So the narrative of the leader around perfectionism is, you know, it's it's a messy little process, but we are going to get this. We're going to iterate till we get this just exactly right, and it feels so good to get it right that we just have to get it perfect. Now, the experience of the person who works for them is that nothing that they do is good enough. I hear this said over and over. People describe experience with diminishing leaders, and they said just everything I did got reworked. Nothing was good enough. Soon I wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And, and people have this, like, hopeless kind of experience every day at work. And, like, what do you learn to do when all of your written work, all of your PowerPoint like sites, they all get a little upgrade, you mm-hmm. know, rewritten, corrected, the red ink treatment, is you learn to turn things in incomplete. Mm-hmm. Because, yep. And I've heard people say that. Like, you know, he was going to rewrite it anyway, so I just gave him, like, my first draft, not my best draft. And you can imagine the cycle that gets that's fueled yep. there. I want to share, um, I think, the best strategy I've heard from someone to counter their perfectionist tendencies. It came from an attorney. He told me, and, and he said, you know, attorneys, like, we're born diminishers, but, you know, more like they're trained, you know, in, in law right. school to do this. And, you know, precision is very important. He said, when I became a partner in our firm, I made a decision 
that although I always want to correct people's work, correct it and prove it, he said, I would only correct people's work if it was legally inaccurate. Hmm. Meaning, if he could say it better, he just left it alone. You know, if he could make it a little clearer or something, or he just let all of that go and said, I'm only going to correct what would like get us into trouble, put our clients into jeopardy. And he said, it's just liberated me. Like, I don't torture the people on my team with my perfectionist tendencies. Great. And I thought it was a really great remedy. What a for great that. idea. What a great idea. And we all have only got to like correct it metaphor. Yeah, in our legally. work that we... Okay, Liz, let's talk for a minute about how to move. Like, you just gave a strategy on how to move from being an accidental diminisher into a multiplier. Do you have other strategies? I mean, how, how do we begin to think about how I get myself less diminishing? Ooh, you just asked me my favorite question. Like, what can you do about it? And... Let me share. I'm going to share the first, I don't know, three or four or five, if I can get in that come to mind. Um, my favorite would be just to shift out of the mode of telling and operate in the mode of asking. You know, every time you get in there and you want to share another idea, um, get the team excited, it's just like contribute by asking a good question. My, my favorite exercise on this is to take what I call the extreme question challenge by training yourself to do this well by occasionally going into a situation and say, I'm going to contribute by only asking questions. No statements, no directives, just questions. And it's not meant, it's meant to be a training exercise, not a permanent way of working because that would be a little bit creepy for everyone. But, you know, that's one, like, go-to multiplier practice. I, I consider it like the ibuprofen <laughs> of leadership practices because it just addresses so many problems. Um, so ask a question instead of giving an opinion. Another would be take what I call the poker chip challenge. And, you know, when you're going into a, a meeting where you're likely to get excited, over-contribute, do too much of the talking, let's say you want other people to come up with ideas or take ownership. And and so you say, I'm going to go in with what, four chips in my pocket. And, of course, you could just metaphorically hold them in your head, and each chip represents something you say or, or contribute to the meeting. And, you know, you, you dispense your opinions in small but intense doses. So mm-hmm. you play your chip with a big idea, a question, a framing of the meeting, a, a summing up of, you know, the key ideas at a critical junction. And then after you play your chip, you step back and you create room for other people to play more chips around you. Um, maybe you... like that one. Maybe you um, counter your optimism tendencies by just signaling the struggle. That's what I've learned to do is, you know, um, and my friend Adam Grant, I'm sure you know him as well. A lot of people know his work. Um, Adam has, uh, he's really quite uh, fond of this idea of multiplier leadership. And and he said, I'm a rescuer for sure. And when he's wanting to, help someone who's struggling, he reminds himself, you know, what people need is sympathy, not a solution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've learned to do that, you know, just signal the struggle that people are going through. Or um, if, if I feel like 
people aren't going big and taking risks, what I would do is create a playground, and that is to say, hey, in all of the work that we do, not all of it is ripe for innovation and experimentation and risk-taking. Like, there's parts of our work that we have to get exactly right. My perfectionist tendencies might come out there. My micromanager might come out there. These are the parts that we need to play it safe. But over here, these, these are the parts of our work that we can go big, take risks, make mistakes, recover. These are our playgrounds, and the other places are our freeways. Mm-hmm. And it has okay. a, a hugely liberating effect on a team. Like, we think that we're supposed to just tell people to be innovative, but actually what's more empowering is telling people where not to be innovative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are a few Great. I love those. Um, I'm scribbling away here and just trying to capture them all. So I just want to repeat these because I think they're so clever. One is to say, before I correct that, whatever it is, document, email, PowerPoint, presentation, board document, ask yourself, is this legally incorrect or legally inaccurate as opposed to it could be said in a better way or another way to say is will this get us in trouble this phrase is it overtly Um, wrong versus overtly wrong right right as opposed to just not nicely worded all right Mm -hmm. that is a brilliant idea Um, another one I'm going to come to your favorite one last another one the poker chip challenge is to go into a meeting knowing I have four chips or maybe it's three chips depending on the number of people in the meeting and every time I make a statement or give an idea I've played a chip and that means when I play the chip I've got to sit back and watch let other people play chips see what happens you know maybe ask a question but my chip is the diminishing activity which is giving the idea of making a statement. All right. And then countering the optimism by signaling the challenge. You know, when you get so enthusiastic to just acknowledge the worry, the concerns, the challenges that people are feeling, not rescue them or give the solutions to them or tell them what to do or any versions of that. So those are that's an easy one to think about. What's the struggle people are expressing? And it turns out that seems to be a really critical part for creating psychological safety. Safety, at least according to Amy Edmondson, mm-hmm. that admitting that we don't know how to do this, I don't know how to do this, we're not going to get this all right, that piece of it is really important. And I love, I'm a big believer that part of what you do as a leader is you set boundary conditions. We're going to do this, but we're not going to do that. Or we're going to do this in this way, but we're going to do that in a completely different way. And I love your freeway versus playground metaphor. To define what are the freeways where we have to move as efficiently, effectively, smoothly, and accurately as possible with no mistakes, hopefully, and the playgrounds where we get to experiment, to free freestyle, um, explore, be creative, but make a distinction between what's a freeway and what's a playground in your work. So great strategies. And the last one you said, just to repeat again, is this notion about asking Rather than telling, asking. Now, I secretly believe that this is a hugely unused skill from leaders because we tend to want to give that information. And I swear you can get almost anything done by asking a really good question. But learning to ask a good question is a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot harder than it sounds. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and I well, just did a diminishing activity. Sorry about that, Liz. I completely took over from you. No, no, not at all. I was excited for what you were going to say because it is a really hard skill to learn, and it's and it's an art form, and you know it can be done badly if you take this extreme question challenge and only ask questions that are judgmental in nature. People can say, "No, I was interrogated, not." multiplied in that situation, but, you know, I think there some questions are better than others. Uh, I see a question value ladder, like at the bottom is, you know, like a, a closed question, then maybe above it is an open-ended question versus uh, a leading question, which sometimes we need to lead people towards certain kinds of actions that, that we need them to take, or above that is like a discovery question, um, you know, how are we going to figure it out together? Maybe above that is like a guiding question. I don't have an answer, but I'm just going to help guide you to a path that could help you find an answer. And I, to me, at the top of the value ladder of great questions is a challenge question, and they're the kind of questions that make us challenge our assumptions. They make us rethink things like, wow, I've never thought about it that way before. And... Those questions in some ways are hard. I have a little shorthand I use for this. Um, I'll give you like two little shorthands for asking good questions. One is a good challenge question. Just you lock in on what is it that everyone assumes to be true about this. And then you just flip that on its head. So if everyone assumes that having more people on the team is going to help us manage our workload, I might ask, well, in what ways will having more people slow us down? You know, in what ways could we, you know, how could we move faster, actually, if we had fewer heads? And, and so it's getting us to look at what if the opposite is actually true? Actually true. So that's a little shorthand for asking those kind of questions that really get people and teams finding new solutions. Okay. And, and maybe... Um, one of my ultimate shorthand is I just love the idea of every manager taking, I don't know, 10 minutes before a meeting to think through what are like the questions I should be asking. Yeah. I realize a lot of people don't have that time. I keep a set of back pocket questions, and I think every leader should have, you know, five go-to questions that you can use in almost any circumstance yes. to get people thinking. And they can be questions as simple as, well, what do you think? Yeah. Or what's your perspective on this? Um, what are the risks that should be considered? What am I not seeing that I need to understand? What What are we assuming to be true that might not be true? Right. Like, Perfect. These, you can ask them anywhere. Like, everyone should have a set of these. Put them on an index card if you need to. Yeah. Put them in your phone. And if you're running between meeting to meeting, just take a look at those look and at use them. Yeah. And it will get the people around you doing the thinking and finding solutions to problems. Perfect. Liz, sadly, we're out of time. I think we could keep Mm -hmm. going on for a very long time on this fabulous (laughs) concept. The question for the day, I think, is where is it that that inner diminisher comes out for you and how do you move from that bit of diminishing into a bit more of a multiplier. My guest today, Liz Weissman, the book we've been talking about is Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. Liz, thank you. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 